Dear Father, I come before you, Father, on behalf of this body, scattered as we are, but united in one spirit. And I put them before you, Father, as your flock, your children. And I, Father, I know the man among others who have you called up and equipped and asked to serve in teaching and caring for this body. And Father, we, we acknowledge to you our inadequacy in that respect. No man, Father, no woman is really truly equipped to do the spiritual work that you desire to do in the hearts of your people. But Father, you work through us. So thankful that you do. And we're so eager to be a part of that work. And we acknowledge, Father, that in these difficult days, we are all the more dependent on you, all the more looking to you to guide and to teach and to encourage and to lift up those in our body who are hurting, who are worried, who are unsure of the future. Father, the things that we would love to do for them in holding their hand or giving them an embrace or praying with them in person, or of looking them in the eye and speaking words of encouragement, the things, Father, that you have called your body to do one for another. We are so unable to do that in many cases now, so we look to you, Father. We look to you to make that difference, to be that comforter as you are, the teacher as only you are, the one who intercedes for all of us, the one who has died for all of us. We pray, Father, that in your supernatural power, you would make up the difference of what we lack in these days of separation. Help us to do the work of ministry remotely and look forward to the day we can do it personally. And in the meantime, and throughout all of this, Father, to lean on you entirely, for we know that apart from you, we are nothing. That is what we ask this morning as we study, Father, on the things you have revealed to us about days to come, even the days we live in now. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're studying the coming of the Lord. That's the mysterious day that Jesus described first to us in Matthew 24. He said this is a day that's going to be part of the last days, the days we're now a part of. And in what we've learned about this already in this chapter, we know this day to be a day that will come suddenly, without warning. And it will come under circumstances that are similar to the days of Noah, Jesus told us last time. Now the days of Noah were days of intense evil and the unbelieving world in that time was unknowingly careening into judgment because God had determined that the evil of the world would be dealt with in a flood. But as we learned last week, these are also times in which the believing world was aware that judgment was coming. And because of that, they were preparing for an escape that God would provide. Jesus said, that model sets an example for us for the circumstances that will surround the day that we're waiting for, the day called the coming of the Lord. And now that we've studied the circumstances of that day, we're ready to move into part two of this study that I call the study of the coming of the day of the Lord, as we've entered into it now in Matthew 24. And part two of this study is a look at the manner of this day, how it will unfold. Jesus didn't give us those details in the Olivet Discourse, however. He waits to provide that detail in the discourse that he has with his disciples at the Last Supper, which is just a few hours away at this point. 
But even then, in Matthew's account of the Last Supper, he does not record the instructions, the uh, teaching that Jesus does on the coming of the Lord. He doesn't include that in his discourse. So we have to go out of Matthew to find that. It's actually in John's gospel. So I'm going to briefly take us to John chapter 14. As I said earlier, it would be helpful in this study today that you have your Bible with you uh, because uh, seeing some of these passages we're going to look at today uh, will be uh, good for you to see the context of what I'm talking about. I would also say in passing that it's always a good idea to have your Bible ready. You know, sometimes we get used to the idea that the churches and pastors put all the words on the screen for us, and I know that's helpful, but there's nothing like knowing for your own sake where to go in the Bible to find the things that you're studying. So I would encourage you to be able to do that. So we are in John chapter 14 today. So that's chapter 14, verse 2. Let's go there now. And here's what Jesus says during the Last Supper about the coming of the Lord. Verse 2 in that chapter, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. And you know where I am going. Now at that moment, as he spoke those words in the upper room, he was just a few hours from his death, and Jesus knew that after his death, his relationship with these men, his disciples, was about to change dramatically. Up to this point, they had walked with him face to face, they had enjoyed his company, they watched him at work, they shared his life. But after Jesus died and was resurrected, and then ascended to the right hand of the Father, these men were going to have to learn a new way to work with Jesus. They're going to lose access to his physical presence for a time, but in return they're going to gain an even greater access to Jesus spiritually. And most of all, they needed to understand that this departure didn't mean the end of ministry or the end of what Jesus was working with them to accomplish. Quite the contrary. It was just the beginning. And eventually, these men and all disciples who would follow them in the church are going to follow in Jesus' footsteps one more time by completing a similar departure to the one that he is now telling them about. So in these final hours before that happens, Jesus announces to these men here in John 14 that he is leaving and one day they will follow after him. And in this chapter, in this passage I just read, we find Jesus' promise to the church that one day he returns to claim us. That is the moment that Jesus called the coming of the Lord back in Matthew chapter 14. It is the day when Jesus will be reunited with all his disciples. Now let's look at this promise, starting in verse 2, when Jesus says, he is going to his father's house soon to prepare a place for the church, and when he does, he will then come back, he says, and claim us. Now I want you to fully appreciate what he's saying here. To do that, though, you have to understand that Jesus is speaking euphemistically here. He is comparing his return for the church to the Jewish wedding traditions of that day. Marriages in Jesus' day were typically arranged by the, the father who selected a bride for his son. And once a bride was identified, then the two families would commit to that marriage by entering into a betrothal agreement. And marriages didn't take place right away in those days because before there could be the marriage, the groom had to prepare a home for his bride-to-be. And that involved the son working with his father to build on an extension to the father's house. This new room that was built would end up being the home of that groom and his bride. 
And it could only be the case that the wedding happened after that room was ready. Only then would the father permit the son to go claim his bride who is busy waiting for the groom back at her own home this whole time. And after claiming her, could bring her home and they would occupy this room that the, the groom had built and they would be married. So when the father deemed that the room was prepared and it was sufficient for this bride, then the groom would travel. The groom would claim his bride from her home and would bring her back. That was typically the first time that the groom and the bride had ever seen each other face to face, perhaps. And later, after about a week at the father's house, they would make arrangements to go back to the bride's house to continue the celebration of the new marriage with her family. Now that was the ancient style of marriage that was common in Jesus's day in that period of history. And Jesus is alluding to that tradition with the choice of language that he uses here in John 14. He's borrowing from that tradition and he's doing so to help us understand the coming of the Lord. He's expecting us to recognize that he is the groom. We are the bride. The father is the father in heaven. His house is heaven, of course. And with all of those details, now we're in a better position to understand what he's saying to us here in John 14. Let's go back and look at it again. In verse two, he says again, he goes away to prepare a place for us. And now obviously that's a reference to Jesus ascending to heaven to where the father is. That is Jesus left the earth after his resurrection. He entered into the presence of the father and he is now there preparing, he said, a place for his bride, for you and I, for the church to join him. But just as obvious as it is that he is the groom and we are the bride, it's also obvious that Jesus is not currently in heaven building additions with wood and sheetrock and all the rest. It's euphemism again. He is preparing a place for us spiritually speaking. The Bible says he is the author and the perfecter of our salvation. Chapter nine of Hebrews says that Jesus mediates a better and new covenant for us in a better tabernacle in heaven, that his blood is the propitiation applied in the heavenly tabernacle to remove the wrath of God and that he is our intercessor seated at the right hand of the father, making intercession for us, reconciling us to God. So when Jesus says he goes away to prepare a place for us, he's speaking about all of that work, going into heaven to make a way for us to follow him into that place. Just like a groom goes off to build the home that he eventually will welcome his bride into. Nevertheless, in the meantime, as we wait, we're still in covenant with Jesus, just as in the case of the bride and the groom, they are still bound by that betrothal. Because marriages in that day did not begin the way ours often do. It's not with a, an engagement. You know, we use that term as if it's some kind of binding agreement when we all know it's nothing. I mean, technically speaking, an engagement is just us saying we're fixing to get married. It really has no binding relationship at all. But in that day, it was very different. People didn't get engaged. They got betrothed. And a betrothal was a far more serious form of binding. It was really a preliminary form of marriage. It was a covenant itself. And so like all covenants, betrothal was not easily broken. In fact, if a man and a woman, for some reason, decided to call off the wedding after having been betrothed, they would actually have to engage in a legal divorce to end that betrothal. You remember the story of Mary and Joseph in the Gospels as Joseph... Uh, 
understands Mary is pregnant and assumes the worst about her, he goes about preparing to divorce her, even though they were just betrothed at that point. They weren't yet fully married. So today, using that analogy again, we are betrothed to Christ as his bride and he is our groom. We were betrothed by our faith and as such we entered into a covenant with him, the new covenant by his blood. And and because of that, that covenant, that betrothal will not be easily broken. In fact, it can't be broken at all because Christ is faithful to his commitments. That is our assurance now that even though we have not seen our groom yet face to face, and even though the wedding, so to speak, has not yet happened, nonetheless it will. This is not like an engagement. It's not a matter of whether the groom decides he wants us in the end or not. It will be the case that it happens. And in fact, the groom's effort to prepare a home for his future bride is the very best proof you could have that he intends to go through with the arrangement. I mean, a man didn't spend all day and every day building a home for his bride-to-be only to decide in the end to call the whole thing off. And similarly, the fact that Jesus has gone to heaven to prepare a place for you is all that you need to know to tell you that he will return for you one day. He will return for all of us. He wouldn't have done the work of redemption. He would not have taken the form of man condescending to be with us here on earth and then dying in our place a painful death on the cross. And he wouldn't then have ascended to cleanse the heavenly tabernacle with his own blood. He would not be sitting at the right hand of the Father continually interceding for all of us if it were not the fact that he fully intends to follow through with what he has begun. Paul says it succinctly in Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. You know that day that he's talking about in that verse? It's the day of the coming of the Lord. It's the day we're talking about in this study. So like a groom claiming his bride, Jesus will come to claim us one day, most assuredly. But also like a groom claiming a bride under the circumstances of the Jewish tradition, the timing of that event, the timing of his return will always be a mystery. Because in the Jewish wedding tradition, the groom could not know when he would be allowed to claim his bride because it depended on the father. The father made the determination when that room was ready and when the groom could go find his bride. He permitted his son to claim the bride only after he felt the room had been adequately built. So that meant the son naturally worked very quickly. He was eager to find uh, approval with the father so that he could have his bride. But in the end, it was up to the father and only the father. And so that betrothal period would last a while, months, maybe even a year or longer. And all that time, you have the bride back at her home waiting and not knowing when she will see the groom appear. But for the same reason, now we know why in Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus told us that no one can know the day or the hour of the coming of the Lord, not the angels in heaven, not even the Son, he said. Because again, the Son does not know when the Father will release him to claim his bride. And then next in verse 3 of John 14, Jesus says, when he comes, he comes to receive us to himself. Now you remember last week when we were looking at this topic in Matthew 24, the coming of the Lord, we saw an illustration there that Jesus gave us about the manner of this day. And he said 
that it unfolds on earth using two illustrations from everyday life about a man in a field and a woman in a mill grinding, remember? And he said there would be two men in the field and then one would be taken, one would be left. Two women, one would be taken, one would be left. Remember that? And as we studied that last week, I told you that the original Greek wording or, or words of that phrase, two men in the field, it should be more like two men in the field, one is received, one is left. Because the Greek word there, paralambano for received, as it's translated in our, my case, it's taken, but it should be received. It suggests to us a movement that the person, the man or that woman was on earth for a moment and then in the next moment they've been moved away, received to Jesus, as it were, away from that moment. Now you look here in verse three of John 14 and here's Jesus using paralambano again, the same Greek word saying he will receive us to himself. So now we have our full picture. The reason there were two men and then just one is because that one that was no longer there had been received by Jesus, taken away from the earth and into his presence. And then Jesus says, once that receiving has happened, that man or woman will be where Jesus was. Now we know Jesus came from heaven to do this receiving. He's told us that here in John 14. And so that tells us that after the receiving, we, the bride, go back with Jesus into heaven. Now, those directions I just described give us proof that what Jesus is talking about here in John 14 is not his second coming. The second coming of Jesus follows a completely opposite set of directions and circumstances than the ones we're studying here in John 14. You know, at Jesus' second coming, he also comes from heaven, yes, and that's the only similarity, because after that, we're told he comes all the way to earth and then he stays on earth in order to preside over the kingdom, which then follows. We learned that earlier in this chapter. We've learned that extensively in our study in Revelation, if you wanna look there. In fact, in Revelation 19, it says not only does Jesus come from heaven to stay on the earth, but it tells us that we come with him. That is, the bride starts in heaven and ends up on earth with him at the conclusion of the event. Do you notice that's a complete opposite set of circumstances from what Jesus just described here? Here, he starts in heaven, but we start on earth. And when he's done, he doesn't stay on earth, he goes back to heaven. And we don't stay on earth either, we're in heaven. Completely the opposite to the second coming. Those details tell us we're looking at a very different day here, something else. The coming of the Lord is not the same thing as the second coming of Jesus. That leads us to our next passage for the morning. And now we're gonna move out of John to one of Paul's letters, the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, we call it. Chapter four, turn there with me. And here's where Paul elaborates on the coming of the Lord, the day that we're studying here. I'll read the passage starting in verse 13. Paul says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Now how do I know that Paul is describing the same thing here that we've been studying earlier in John 14 or in Matthew 24? Well, there are two reasons. First, notice in verse 15 of this passage I just read, Paul refers to the day that he's describing here as the coming of the Lord. That's exactly the same term Jesus used in Matthew 24. Secondly, notice that all of the direction of movement that Paul describes in this passage is exactly the same as the movement that Jesus described in John 14. Paul says, Jesus returns from heaven. Then Paul says that believers are caught up, or we could say received up to Jesus in the clouds. And then it says we remain with Jesus after that, speaking of us remaining with Jesus in heaven as he departs. So Jesus and Paul are talking about the same day. But Paul gives us three new details here, and that's the focus of why we came to this passage, beginning with the fact that this day is announced with some dramatic signals in the moment. The first of those, Paul says, is an archangel shouting. And I think he's probably referring to the archangel Michael. So what he's saying is believers across the face of the earth, when this moment happens, will hear suddenly an angelic voice announcing that the day has come. This will be probably the first of many angelic voices we will hear in the coming eternity, the follow. And then Paul says there will be a heavenly trumpet sounding. And that links this event, this coming of the Lord event, with the Jewish feast of trumpets called Rosh Hashanah. And just as it was with the shout, I think this trumpet will only be heard by the believers on the earth. That this whole moment is for believers, so believers are the ones being signaled to know that it is now starting. So that man in the field that we talked about, or the woman at the mill that Jesus described, they will hear these things while the other man in the field or the other woman at the mill will not. And these signals, I should add, are not signs telling us that it's about to happen. Jesus told us earlier, there are no signs for this event. Rather, these are the announcements to us that the event is now underway. So that's the first thing we learn. Be listening for a shout, be ready for a trumpet. Second thing we learn is that the Lord does not return all the way to the earth. In verse 17 of that passage, Paul says that when Jesus comes for his bride, he never actually gets all the way to the ground, but instead he meets us in the clouds above the earth. Now that explains something right away. That explains why we keep hearing the word received being used in the passages we've studied, because we cannot go to him ourselves. We must be received by him because he doesn't come down to where we are. We have to go up to where he is, in the clouds, out of the sight of the world. So the world, in fact, will never know that Jesus ever came. And that fits the earlier descriptions he gave us of those two men and two women again. He described it in such a way as to suggest that from the perspective of earth, one moment everything's normal, next moment somebody's not there. And that's consistent with the idea that they see and hear nothing else except they note the disappearance of somebody. One moment to the next minute, just one. Paul's description confirms once more that we are talking about a different day 
than the second coming of the Lord because at the second coming of Jesus, he doesn't stay in the clouds. He comes all the way to the earth and not just for a moment, but to live here. In fact, we call this future return of Jesus the second coming because it's much like the first coming. The first time Jesus came to earth, he came down, lived as a man on the face of the planet for a time. And likewise, in the second coming of Jesus, it's the same thing, although, of course, the circumstances will be very different. But yet he is here on the earth living amongst us. That is the second coming. But Paul here just describes something very different than that. Jesus never comes to the earth, and he certainly doesn't stay You'll notice in verse 17, as Paul was describing this moment of us being received to him, he says we are caught up with Jesus in the clouds. And the Greek word there for caught up is harpazo. Now the word harpazo literally means to snatch away. It tells us not only that we are being received, but it also communicates the speed of it, doesn't it? Snatch away, a quick movement. Later when the Bible was translated out of Greek and into Latin, that word harpazo became raptura in Latin. And that Latin translation is responsible for giving us the more common name by which this day goes today. Today we have come to calling it the rapture because the English form of the word raptura is rapture. Finally, the third thing we learn out of this passage, Paul tells us that the coming of the Lord, or let's just call it the rapture from now on, won't just be a moment for those believers who are alive here on the earth when it comes. But in verse 14, Paul says, Jesus, when he comes on that day, will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And that's a euphemistic way of saying those believers who have previously died. The Bible tells us that when a Christian dies, the spirit of that person leaves the dead body behind and enters into the presence of Jesus in heaven immediately. They are fully conscious in that place, but yet they are in a spirit form only. They don't have a physical body in that time. Paul says, when the day of the Lord, or the day of the coming of the Lord happens, when the rapture happens, these bodiless believers who have been with Jesus all this time waiting will come down with him to be included in this event. They leave heaven with Jesus. They come down to the clouds with Jesus. And Paul says in verse 16 that they will be the first to rise. Now, when the Bible uses the term rise, it's always a reference to a literal, physical resurrection. So what we're learning here is that the coming of the Lord, the rapture as we call it today, is our resurrection day. In fact, when people say, well, the word rapture is not in the Bible, I don't try to explain to them how we got the word. I just simply say, well, then call it what it's called in the Bible. It's the resurrection day or the coming of the Lord. And that's why Paul says the coming of the Lord will be a moment of resurrection for both those believers who have died previously as well as those believers who are still alive and remain on the earth in the moment. Because every believer will need a new resurrected eternal body in order to live in that future eternal kingdom. That's what we're all waiting for. And it's only fair that those who have already died ahead of us should be first in line to get the new body on the day when Jesus is handing them out on the day of the rapture. Now, it's one thing for us to understand dead, bodiless spirits of believers in heaven receiving a new body. That makes perfect sense, right? We know they're waiting for their body and it makes sense that one day they would receive it. 
But it's another thing to consider a living person who's not yet died receiving a new body, being resurrected, so to speak. I mean, when we say the word even, resurrect, it implies that there's been a death. But Paul says in verse 17, those believers who are still alive and on the earth when this day finally comes, they too will be resurrected. So how can you be resurrected if you haven't died yet? Well, that leads us to our final passage for this morning, also written by Paul to another church in Corinth. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And while you're turning there, we'll start in verse 50 of that chapter near the end. Paul says this to the church. He says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. All right, in this chapter, Paul is, if you look at the whole of it, he's defending the reality of a future physical resurrection for the believer. And he's doing so because the church in Corinth had been deceived at some point into thinking that the literal physical resurrection of the Bible wasn't true, that it wasn't going to happen for believers. We were just going to live forever in spirit form only. And so he's been defending the reality of this future body that we're going to receive. And when he gets to verse 50, at this point, Paul begins to explain how the Lord is going to resurrect believers who have not died yet who are still alive when the resurrection day comes. The same situation we were just looking at in 1 Thessalonians. He begins in verse 51. He acknowledges, look, this is a mystery. This is a moment that you hadn't heard about before. And a mystery in the Bible is a way of saying a truth that has been hidden for at least a time and now has been revealed to us. So it's not forever a mystery. It's been a mystery, but now we're learning it. So Paul is saying to this church, let me share something with you that I've learned from Jesus that you need to understand as well. And this is the mystery, that not all will die before they are resurrected. Or simply put, the mystery is that there is a rapture coming. You know, you may have encountered from time to time believers who would doubt the teaching of the rapture. They'll tell you that it's not true. I've heard some make the argument that the Bible never mentions it and that the whole notion of it was invented in the 1800s or whenever and that it's not biblically true. Now, obviously, there is the coming of the Lord in Scripture. We've looked at it. It's in Matthew 24. Jesus talks about it there. We see it in John 14. We're seeing Paul talk about it. I mean, the phrase, the coming of the Lord, is certainly in Scripture, but many of these doubters would tell you that that's a reference to the second coming, not to the rapture. But as you've seen with me already, it can't be a reference to the second coming. All the directions are the opposite of the second coming. Moreover, when someone says to you that the rapture is not true, that it's not a biblical concept, they fail to appreciate the nature of this mystery. That is, they fail to appreciate that we're talking about the resurrection of the church. And unless somebody is paying attention, and I should add, keeps a teachable heart, they're going to miss the truth of mysteries like this one. That's the whole nature of a mystery. It's a bit of a test, really. It's a test of biblical scholarship and of your willingness to learn. Because without those things, mysteries will stay mysteries. 
I think that's how God is testing many hearts in the case of the rapture. The most fundamental aspect of our Christian faith, truly, the Bible calls our resurrection the hope of our faith. The central hope of the Christian faith, for some, remains a bit of a mystery because they fail to see it. And I should add, by the way, that if a Christian should tell you that the rapture doesn't exist, they're making the same mistake this church in Corinth did. They're effectively denying the reality of resurrection. And it's often not the case that they understand that, of course. I've had this conversation with some, and it's usually quite entertaining, because at the moment that you explain to them that that we're talking about the resurrection of believers, well, they wouldn't argue against that. I would venture to say every Christian agrees that there is a future day for us of resurrection of a new physical body, but they fail to appreciate that the coming of the Lord, or as we now call it, the rapture, is the Bible's moment for that outcome, for the day that we will be resurrected. And it's not just that some of us get resurrected or that each of us gets resurrected in our own day. No, the Bible is clear. All believers in the church, all are resurrected, all at the same time, whether they have died previously or whether they are still alive. And that's why it must be that at least some in the church will experience this day from the point of still being alive because we can't leave anyone out and God is not waiting for the last believer to die before he brings this event about. Let's talk about resurrection more for a moment so that we can understand this day a little better as Paul explains it here in 1 Corinthians 15. Simply put, resurrection is the process of a dead person coming to life again, their body coming to life again. Now, some people, I think, get this a little backward. They think that resurrection is a spirit coming back to life or a spirit going up to heaven. I I think of the Roadrunner Coyote cartoons where the coyote gets run over by a boulder and then the dead body stays on the ground and the spirit of the coyote floats to heaven in the cartoon, as you may remember. That is not resurrection. Resurrection is that dead body coming back to life, the spirit being reunited with a physical body. That's resurrection. And of course, the best example we have of this in scripture, obviously, is Jesus and his own resurrection. Think about how that went. When he died, Jesus' spirit left his body. His body remained lifeless in the tomb while his spirit, we're told, descended into Sheol. And then three days later, we're told, Jesus' spirit was returned to his body, his physical body, And that's what prompted his physical body to stand up out of the tomb and walk away. That's resurrection. Jesus' spirit never ceased to be alive. It never ceased to be conscious. Only his physical body ceased to be uh, animated, to cease to have life. And when believers die today, it's similar. Not exactly the same, of course. But our spirit leaves behind a lifeless body also. We enter into the presence of Jesus in heaven, still conscious, still very much alive in the spirit. But heaven is not our permanent home. You know, the place of God's dwelling in the heavenly is not the place we spend eternity, according to the Bible. We are destined to live in a physical body on a physical earth. That's how God designed us. That's how he made us. And that is our future destiny in the kingdom. So one day, we must be resurrected. One day, our spirit must be reunited with a physical body, a new physical body, and that's where things differ for us compared to Jesus. We don't come back to the same body, and I'm sure some are saying hallelujah right now, 
But it's because our old body is corrupt. It's filled with sin. It cannot suit us in the future. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul said that the perishable must put on the imperishable. The corrupt must put on the uncorruptible. We must become like Jesus in all respects in order to live with him. So in the day that resurrection comes for us, we don't have our spirit finding our old body wherever it is and reuniting with it. No, the good news is we get an all new body, brand spanking new body that is eternal, sinless, glorified, and will never die again. And what Paul is revealing here in 1 Corinthians 15 is a mystery for how God intends to bring about that process for the church on the day of the coming of the Lord. And in particular, how it will transpire for those who are still alive when this moment comes. As Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, not all believers will be required to sleep and again, that's a euphemism. It refers to death. Not all believers will experience physical death because when the moment comes, whoever is still remaining on the earth at that moment, if you will, they win the lottery. They're the believers who get to skip the step of death and go immediately into the new body. Paul describes that very specifically. He says that we will be changed, speaking about those believers who are alive in the moment. We will be changed. The Greek word that he's using there for the word changed is alasso. And alasso in Greek, most literally translated, means an exchange, an exchange of something. So we would ask the question here, what's being exchanged? Well, obviously, Christians who are alive on that day are exchanging their current corrupt dying body for the new eternal one that God is giving them in that moment. So they will be resurrected without first passing through death. And what a benefit, what a blessing it will be for them, of course. Notice in verse 52, Paul says this exchange is instantaneous. It happens in a brief moment. The, the word that Paul uses there that's translated moment for us, atomos in Greek. We get words like atom from that Greek word. And atomos in Greek means something so small that it cannot be divided any further. So the exchange of the old body for the new body that happens on the rapture, it comes so quickly in a moment that is so brief, so instantaneous, that moment of time could not be divided any further. One moment, we're in the field or in the mill, and then instantly, we are in the clouds with Jesus in a new body. I mean, if you blink, you miss it. In fact, Paul even says that, right? He says it's in the twinkling of an eye, like that. And then it's over. If you are still on the earth, if you're one of those left behind, it's as if we don't know what happened. One moment you're standing there with your buddy, your workmate, next minute you're wondering where he went. One minute the woman's at the well with her friend chatting, next minute she looks around and she wonders where'd she go. But above the world, unnoticed, in the clouds, there will be a celebration unlike anything that creation has ever known. The eternal bride has been united with her groom and an uncountable number of saints are rejoicing together. We'll be rejoicing that we're with Jesus. We'll be rejoicing that we're all together, all brothers and sisters from all time. Not merely those you knew in this life, but all those going back to Pentecost. And we'll be marveling at our new bodies that we're suddenly occupying, free from disease, free from pain, and most of all, free from sin and death. And I should add, you may be marveling at how much my new body looks like Brad Pitt. 
That's how the coming of the Lord will play out. Suddenly, dramatically, instantaneously, gloriously. And that's very different, by the way, from the other events that Jesus has described so far in Matthew 24, going back to the beginning of the chapter. You know, he announced that the end of the age would be a signal to us over centuries of time with signs that build slowly into ever-increasing cataclysmic events. That's nothing like what we're seeing here. Or the signs of Jesus' second coming. I mean, you can mark the date of his second coming on a calendar once the tribulation begins because it'll be exactly seven years later. And of course, the whole of tribulation is nothing but a series of unbelievable and destructive signs telling you that the second coming is around the corner. No, this moment is nothing like that. This moment happens in an instant. It happens with no warning, with no signs. And until Paul explained it to us here, it was a complete mystery that it was even in the plan. And in Matthew 24, Jesus told us that this day having no association with signs means it can happen at any time. Now we know because of where we are in history that it's going to be a part of the last days and a part of the end times because the signs of our time tell us we're already in that period now and of course the rapture hasn't happened yet. So by definition, it will happen as part of the last days. But that's never been said in scripture explicitly. It was literally the case that it could happen in the first century or the second century or any century. Now in hindsight, we see why it hasn't happened yet, but there was never any way a believer looking forward in time could have said on any given day, well, today is the day the rapture can't happen. That's not true. There are no signs. There are no preceding requirements, no prerequisites. It could happen at any point. So the same must be true for us now. Every moment of every day of your life, you are just an atomos, an instant away from finding yourself celebrating in the clouds with Jesus. And that day will be so sudden, it will not only interrupt your plans for that day, but for the rest of your life. In fact, it will be so sudden, it will interrupt your very thoughts in the moment. One moment, you will be worrying about something, perhaps. You will be fearing some calamity, or you'll be weighed down by some worldly desire. You'll be distracted by something of your life here on earth. One moment, that's all you'll see and all you'll know, and then in a flash, it'll all be behind you. And you will be facing Jesus and on your way to heaven. And suddenly, as you marvel at your new body, you're gonna feel this endless strength this boundless joy. You're gonna be completely free of evil thought and of sinful desires. You're gonna be experiencing this overwhelming love for God and with God, moving in and through you, untainted by selfishness and deceit. And you're gonna behold the one that scripture calls beautiful in his full glory, just as a bride looks upon her groom on her wedding day. And in that moment, I wonder, what are we gonna be saying to ourselves as we reflect on the life that we just left behind, on the moment we were just in, on the thoughts we were just entertaining? Are we gonna to wonder to ourselves how we allowed ourselves to become so absorbed in the worries and the sadness and the struggles of this world? Why we were so distracted by that? 
Are we going to regret the time we spent chasing after this world? You know, as we're in the clouds and this world is fading in our rearview mirror as we look up at heaven, are we going to wonder why we were investing so much in that place? Why we worried about it? Why we strived for it? I wonder, you know, when a bride is betrothed to her groom and she knows she's going to leave that home and join a new one shortly, how much concern does she put into the matters of her family? Does she start redecorating her room? Does she make investment in the property? I mean, does she think at all about that world? Or is she only thinking about what's coming next? I think you know now why Jesus tells us elsewhere in the Gospels not to indulge in fear, not to worry, not to store things up on this earth. He wasn't just giving you some advice about maintaining a positive attitude or, you know, keep your eyes on the ball or something like that. Look, you're, you're at, I'll be honest with you, your attitude makes no difference in your eternal future whatsoever. Having a positive attitude does not change your resurrection day. The day of the Lord comes for all Christians in the same way. You can be fearful and sad and grumpy and you're going to be resurrected just the same as all of the peaceful, joyful, contented Christians around you. Thank God, too. Some of you are saying amen to that. The reason Jesus counseled us to resist giving in to feelings of worry or sadness or insecurity is because it's a waste of time. Fundamentally, those things are evidence that we've taken our focus off of our eternal future and we've fixed it on a lost and dying world that we are destined to see fading in our rearview mirror one day soon, perhaps in the next instant. Look, we all live in this world, right? So we all have to contend with the trials that come our way. I'm not saying remain blissfully ignorant. What I'm saying is this. Those trials have the potential to discourage us, the potential to frighten us, the potential to anger us or tempt us into sin of whatever form. But we cannot let those circumstances and those experiences provoke emotion and response that changes our outlook in life, our focus in life, our purpose in life. They can be there with us even as we search out ways to serve Jesus. We cannot let them define us. And I know that may be easier said than done for some of us. And I'm sympathetic to that. But don't let that change your goal. Do not give in to that. Do not accept it as normal and do not accept it as healthy. You ought to consider how you feel now in light of how you will feel when you're in the clouds and looking back on this life. I want you to consider how you're gonna reflect on your life, the one you're leaving behind. And I wanna ask yourself, when you're in that moment, when you're in the clouds, and as I said, that's a moment that could happen before I'm done talking. Here again, maybe another amen or two. But when you're in that moment and you're looking back, how do you wanna remember your life? What is it you wanna reflect on? If you spent the better part of your adult life preoccupied with matters of this world that is an achievement focus, uh, a pursuit of something, of someone, of what this world thinks of you, what this world offers you. Let me suggest to you that when we're in the clouds, we may be feeling like we wasted our time and opportunity while we were here. And as you look upon that new eternal sinless body that you're going to have, the one that's never going to grow old, the one that's never going to wear out, I think you're going to wonder why you might have spent so much time trying to preserve a body that was destined to die anyway. Or as you learn of your eternal treasure, which Jesus has awarded to us in that day on the basis of our service, won't you question why you spent so much time storing up treasure on an earth that was destined to burn up? 
I mean, we know these things. The scriptures tell us these things. But it helps, I think, to understand when we're in the moment that we know is coming, we will feel things and we will remember things. And we don't have to enter that moment with so many regrets because the word of God has revealed to us a mystery precisely so that we will think differently about who we are now. Next week, we're gonna consider the third part of this study, that is the purpose of this day, why the Lord has included this plan in the events for the church and for the world. But here's a preview of what you're gonna learn next week. I sum it up with a phrase you've heard me use before, living with eyes for eternity. In other words, thinking about your future, thinking about the fact that the coming of the Lord could happen at any second, and in that second, you'd be with Jesus in the clouds in a new body. Thinking about that so that you can live differently now, making every second count. In the meantime, let the reality of that future influence who you are now in Jesus. And by the way, if there's anyone hearing this thinking, well, you know, that's fine for those who are raptured, Steve, but I, I imagine I'll probably be one of those who dies before the rapture. You know what, that doesn't change anything. Because in the moment you die, when your body is left behind, your spirit enters into the presence of the Lord and all these same facts are still true. All these same experiences are still holding for that person as well because we're all just a heartbeat away, as the saying goes. So whether you die or whether you live until the rapture, either way, live with eyes for eternity. Live with an appreciation for where you're going and for what lies in store for us when we get there. We're going to pick this conversation up again next week as we continue in this study of the day of the coming of the Lord as we move on forward in our study of Matthew. I hope it's been a bit of an encouragement along the way and certainly today that you would think about where you're going and let that drive your emotion and your enjoyment of today. Let it direct how you see your life now for that's its purpose. Let's pray. Father, Give us eyes for eternity. Give us a hope that understands our future so that this world will not weigh us down and we will not waste time trying to make it into heaven. But rather, Father, let us make every day here count for the purpose you ordained, that we would be here as light to a dark world and as your voice, the messenger who says good news has come. And in that way, Father, we prepare more to join us in the clouds. We expand the family of God that will know that day when it comes. I pray, Father, for that privilege to be part of that outcome, that we spend our time on your pursuits. And as we go about the normal things of life, finding shelter, food, engaging in work, raising families, the things that make life what it is, Father, Help us to avoid making it all that it is so that we will not forget that better things are coming and serve you with that heart. This is our prayer, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray.